Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Coronavirus Update. If you're in lockdown, just like me, don't worry. I've put together some of the best bits from my talk radio breakfast show into this daily podcast, so you won't miss any of the day's biggest coronavirus updates. Enjoy and stay safe. Online, on DAB and on the talk radio app. Talk Radio. Well, good morning to you. Lovely to have your company this morning on day 44 of the lockdown. Well, a lockdown for most of us, those of us who are obeying the lockdown, which would be millions and millions of us. Uh, joining me this morning, also obeying the lockdown, Emma Revel, Head of Communications at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And uh, we're going to get to our uh, our first uh, guests in just a few moments. But uh, first of all, a few words about Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College. He's the epidemiologist who has been absolutely vital uh, in terms of the advice given to the government in terms of how we handle the coronavirus pandemic. He was the man who predicted we could lose up to 500,000 lives here in the UK if we didn't have a strict lockdown. He is a key member, well, was until last night, of SAGE, that's the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. He had to resign, though, after he was exposed for breaking the lockdown rules that he advised the government to impose or we'd lose half a million lives. He, it turns out, invited his married lover to his home at least twice. She, apparently in an open marriage with two children. Well, leaving aside the fact that um, uh, she is a climate activist and socialist who lives in a two million pound home and that he's a statistician and epidemiologist and her name is uh, uh, Antonia Stats, leave aside the claim that she is in an open marriage because um, I'm sure her children will be thrilled uh, to know about that. Um, It's the fact that he was able to break the lockdown rules because he figured he wasn't a risk to anyone else and no one was a risk to him. Why? Because he'd already had coronavirus. Well, many, many hundreds of thousands of in this country believe we are uh, are, are also safe because we haven't. uh, We we, we believe we've had the virus. But he, because of his position as a leading epidemiologist working on a, a, a possible vaccine, was able to get a test at a time when they weren't available to most of us. Indeed, they were only available to people who were very, very sick and those working in the NHS. So he used the fact that he had that test to enable him to justify breaking the rules. He believed he had antibodies. They gave him immunity. He couldn't be a risk. So why couldn't uh, he meet with his married lover? And the reason is because it's rank hypocrisy to advise rules which shatter people's lives, shatter people's businesses. People have lost their businesses. They've spent years building up. People have lost their jobs. People may lose their homes. People are facing being stuck miles away from family members, miles away from 
elderly relatives who may not make it through the pandemic, who may never get to touch, hold hands and see the smile of their grandchildren ever again. He advised those rules and we trusted and the government trusted that he believed those rules were necessary to save lives. But those rules, it turns out, weren't for everyone. Those rules, as we've seen again and again from the elites, from the people who think they know better, those rules were for the little people. They weren't for people like Professor Neil Ferguson. A lot of people talking about how we've uh, had enough of experts. Well, I tell you what, we've definitely had enough of this hypocritical expert. So goodbye, Professor Neil Ferguson. Keep working on uh, the vaccine. We'll be happily, happily uh, take that on uh, if you do come up with it. But in the meantime, I think the less we hear from Professor Neil Ferguson, the better. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Next guest now, uh, who is, of course, the Security Minister, James Brokenshire. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Um, can we talk, first of all, about uh, Professor Neil Ferguson, who has resigned uh, from uh, yes. SAGE, advising the government. He's still carrying on his work, obviously, as a uh, epidemiologist and statistician, looking into, uh, hopefully, a vaccine, and, and that work continues. Um, however, given that he was not obeying the lockdown rules that he had advised the government to actually institute, can we infer from that that actually those lockdown rules aren't needed? Uh, no, I don't think we, we certainly can. Uh, we certainly cannot take that to inference, uh, Julia. Uh, what Neil Ferguson said was that he accepted he'd made an error of judgment and took the wrong course of action, that he regretted undermining the very clear messages around the continued need for social distancing to control the uh, coronavirus outbreak. And the government guidance is unequivocal, uh, and that's there to protect us all. I think he was right in saying that. Uh, I think, uh, sadly, you know, he made this uh, error of judgment and I think he's taken the right course of action. But no, the social distancing uh, requirements uh, absolutely are still needed. Clearly, that we're reflecting on the next stages around all of this. And uh, I would expect the prime minister to make a statement around this before the end, by the end of this week. But um, but no, the, the requirements still very firmly still remain in place. It's important that we do stay at home to save lives, protect our NHS. We're seeing the impact that that has had. And it's important that at this point in time, we continue all of those restrictions. OK, well, there's lots of concern, isn't there, about um, the uh, the death toll in the UK. Lots of the front pages today are talking about how the UK death toll has overtaken Italy's. It uh, doesn't take into account, of course, that the fact that it, uh, Italy does actually uh, uh, have a smaller population overall than ours. So per capita, we are still below Spain, Italy and Belgium. Yeah. We've been talking to Dr. David Nabarro, who's special envoy uh, to the World Health Organization, about this as well. But there is a there is an issue here in terms of making those international comparisons. Um how badly or well do you believe that Britain is doing? Well, I think, I think at the outset, Julia, it's important to underline that uh, this is absolutely tragic, that it's not numbers we're talking about. It's, it's people, it's individuals, it's families who've been affected, their loved ones. Uh, and I think our hearts go out to everyone who's been affected in this way. I still think that it is too early uh, to make these these judgments. You know, we're focused on uh, the the here and now, on the steps to uh, halt the progress of the virus, to ensure that we're then looking at these next stages on getting the economy going. Uh, but you know, there will be there will be time once uh, the virus is under control for reflection, for assessment. I think that that is the right time to be making 
the uh, the comparisons to look at how countries have taken different actions and the lessons that do need to be learned. Uh, there are, uh, as you've highlighted, no automatic or straightforward comparisons. People do things in different ways. You have population impact and in some ways at that end point, the chief scientific and chief medical officers appointed to uh, looking at uh, what's termed as the uh, excess death rate. But this is for later. Uh, I think that we just got to keep focused on supporting our NHS, uh, ensuring that we're getting the right next steps as We've obviously seen the benefit of the actions that have been taken to date, uh, but there will be plenty of time to reflect upon this uh, at a later point. Yes, um, no doubt. And again, we, we, as you say, we, we're not really going to know an awful lot about uh, what, uh, how no. countries have done until we do see those excess deaths no, because of the different yeah, way they're compared. The... When, we, when we see those numbers, we will have a very stark um, yeah. uh, vision of, of how well we have done as a country per, per population. And, you know, and let's not forget, we're, we're still, we're, we're not through this. Um, we're, you know, very uh, focused on ensuring that there isn't a, a second peak, uh, that obviously we have uh, capabilities uh, that have been ramped up and being in place. And I think it's important that we, yes, reflect that, yes, there will be that time for searching questions, for uh, better data and comparisons to be made. Uh, but, you know, we certainly do continue to talk to all of our uh, international partners. The chief scientific officer, the chief medical officer have regular contact with their counterparts so that we can continue to look at where there is good practice, that we continue to inform the steps that government is taking. Uh, and clearly, uh, we're analysing that carefully with the input from our scientific advisory group, SAGE, uh, to assist and ensure that we're doing that in as informed a basis as we can be and very much firmly being led by that uh, science and that input, given that we're dealing with something new, something entirely novel in this, in this new virus and why people have been learning and applying things at pace. Um, well, let's also talk about uh, what is also, I suppose, not well, not new, actually. It is the cyber attacks, but this revelation from the UK and US intelligence and security agencies that cyber criminal gangs uh, believed to be backed by China, Russia and uh, Iran are targeting British drug companies and universities trying to develop a coronavirus mm. vaccine. Uh, you know, it was ever thus, uh, the, the, the cyber attacks. But um, um, how serious is this? Is this about an attempt to sort of steal the information and then just use the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the information themselves to develop their own vaccine? vaccine or is there something yeah. more i mean that's sinister enough but is there something more sinister there well um you're right in highlighting that our national cyber security center uh, along with the united states department of homeland security put out this advisory note uh, yesterday highlighting of the threat of what they term advanced persistent threat groups that uh, in essence are targeting some research pharmaceutical companies medical organizations universities uh, now what we see is that these groups frequently target such organizations to try and steal sensitive data intellectual property for commercial and other uses so it is the, the sense of vigilance that we have put out this advisory note we have invested very firmly in our cybersecurity capabilities and action that we take. Uh, and it's to ensure that companies, those organizations are properly alerted, both here in the UK and across the globe, hence the, hence the join up with our US partners. But unfortunately, the sad reality is that people will seek to take advantage of the, uh, advantage of the current crisis. 
and therefore the vigilance we have, the steps that we're taking to uh, see that uh, we're able to uh, combat this. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Delighted to welcome now Shadow Health Secretary, Labour MP, Jonathan Ashworth, to the show. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. First question has to be, I'm afraid, about uh, the uh, leading scientist who's been the top government advisor on the SAGE committee, Neil Ferguson, who's resigned from that role after he said he made an error of judgment uh, in breaching the lockdown rules, inviting his married lover to his home on at least a couple of occasions when he was uh, uh, supposed to be under the lockdown. What do you make of his decision to resign? Well, I'm I'm not going to get into somebody's uh, private life. and He's got into our private lives. He's told us who we can and can't see. Well, I respect the decision he's made, but I mean, you know, I would make a broader point. We should. This lockdown is vital to suppress the spread of this virus, and obviously, everybody should should be following the lockdown rules. And we appreciate that for many people, the lockdown is very, very difficult. I mean, it's fine if you've got a, you know, a nice house with a, a big garden, but there's lots of people trapped in small, damp flats, often overcrowded, or perhaps trapped with an abusive partner. And one of my big concerns is that. That well, yes, I accept the lockdown is needed and supported. <clears throat> I also want to see more support put in place for those who will be detrimentally impacted by this lockdown. What about the people saying that this is a man who who was advising the government, saying we'd lose half a million uh, people to coronavirus if we didn't go into this very strict lockdown, uh, and that it appears he didn't himself believe in the necessity of the lockdown? Does that not raise any questions for you about government policy? Well, I mean, we've been questioning government 
policy throughout this. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I seem to have just got a croaky voice all of a sudden. That's okay. Um, that's okay. I, I, I don't think that's because I don't know why that is. Um, anyway, um, look, we've been questioning government policy throughout all of this, and we've always been asking whether uh, the decisions that are being taken are, are, uh, are based on the scientific advice and that's why we often call for the scientific advice to be published i mean you know some some have asked if we went into lockdown too slowly others have asked why we allowed um you know if the flights to land and we didn't quarantine ask people to quarantine particularly as yesterday the scientific advisors said that we believe in early march uh we imported lots of cases from spain and italy well also in early march we were we allowed for example the atletico madrid liverpool game to go ahead even though people were questioning whether it should go ahead so I think it's right we always question the science or question ministers as to whether they're basing their decisions on the science. But the way, the best way we can reassure ourselves is for all the scientific advice to be continually published. OK, well, let's uh, talk about what you, you, you've uh, published today. And that's uh, uh, your call for a COVID-19 health inequalities strategy in particular to protect deprived and uh, black and ethnic minority communities and tackle what you call the hidden health effects of the pandemic. Tell us what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, what we know is that if you're from a, a more deprived area, uh, you're more likely to uh, uh, suffer from and indeed die from various cancers, from heart disease, from respiratory diseases. Uh, and this is in every age group. And I think what COVID-19 is doing is it, 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 we are seeing more and more deaths from deprived areas. We're seeing a higher proportion of people from black, Asian, minority, ethnic communities uh, uh, getting covid 19 and, de and indeed uh, dying from COVID-19. So I think we need to understand why this is happening and what extra support can be put in place to support these vulnerable, deprived communities who are very much at risk. And then in turn, while the NHS is tackling COVID and we understand why it is focused on COVID, it's had to delay a lot of other treatments. You know, operations have been cancelled, cancer treatments delayed. As the NHS begins to reset, we need to make sure it's got the resources to uh, uh, tackle this huge growing wave of unmet clinical need as well, which will also often detrimentally impact the, the worst off in society. Look, I think everyone is concerned about you know any any death, whoever it is, whether it's someone living in a mansion who's white or someone living in a council flat who's black. And there seems to be so much focus from the left on on the black and ethnic minority people who have died and those in, in deprived areas. And I think a lot of us are a bit confused by this because again, every single life matters. We we know the reasons why people living in deprived areas are more likely to get the virus and die. We know deprived areas tend to be in cities. We know that cities, urban areas, particularly in London, is where the virus spreads. We know that people who are poorer tend to live in deprived areas in big cities. Uh, we also know they tend to have uh, worse health, uh, tend to have obesity, to smoke, to drink more. And that leads them to have the health problems, the underlying problems, which leads to them more likely to die. Um, and we know particularly also even looking at the stats for black and ethnic minorities, they're very different for different ethnic groups. In particular, is uh, Afro-Caribbean people have a much higher rate of death than, say, African uh, origin or white people. And we also know they have... A a much, much higher rate of obesity and diabetes, the specific underlying health problem that does actually contribute to a morbidity from COVID-19. Um, this is all being dressed up as some sort of social problem, as some sort of almost racism or classist problem, when this is just about the medical facts. Healthy people have got a better chance of, of, of living from getting coronavirus than unhealthy people. Yes, but I would where I, would, I disagree with you, though, is that why... 
are some people healthy and why are some people unhealthy? Well, often, often I, I would argue that poverty and deprivation and inequality drives ill health as well, because we know that the poorer you are, the more likely you are to, to die earlier in life. You're more likely to get illness earlier. But you're more likely life. to more likely to eat badly, not necessarily not be able to afford to eat well. You're more likely to live on takeaways, um, be overweight, to smoke, to drink. But a lot of these are people's choices. Now, it might be easier to make better choices for some people than others. And I accept that, absolutely. But nevertheless, um, people do make free choices in a free country. And 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 that this is and this is the outcome. But but we've known for decades that people who make poor choices like this will likely live a less long life. But 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 it's the means then which with which you have to live which determine the choices you are able to make. And it's a bit like saying everyone's free to walk into the Ritz Hotel. Well, everyone is free to walk into the Ritz Hotel, but not everyone can afford to go and uh, uh, book a room in the Ritz Hotel, can they? No. So I mean, I mean, I mean, and what before the COVID crisis um, uh, sort of kicked off, as it were, we had a, a big report from an academic called Sir Michael Marmot, who who had studied this, and it showed that life expectancy has actually now begun to go backwards for the twenty percent poorest women in society. So this is this is the context uh, in which this is is going on, and I think you now see it. So not only are you seeing uh, more deaths for poorer people you're now on top of that seeing a greater number of covid deaths amongst poorer people and i think i don't think we can walk on by on the other side i think we need to do something about it if we can okay well what telling people you're not allowed to get fat will be probably the the best advice you give why is everyone so concerned about particularly groups who are dying of covid19 but seem to be completely ignoring the fact that it's largely men it seems when there's talk about even taking say ethnic minority health workers away from the front line i haven't heard anyone say we should get men away from the front line they're more likely to die why does no one care about men anymore uh, well, I care about men. I care about I care about everyone. But you're right. I mean, I mean, it's often men who are more likely to die from heart disease and respiratory disease. Uh, uh, often, in, um, you know, when particularly in poorer backgrounds, usually a reflection of the uh, type of work that they have been involved in. In, uh, in a, particularly older older men, um, you know, often often a reflection of. The, of of the manual labour that, that 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 they did in their in their work, um, so yeah, I think these things need to all be looked at carefully and considered. So I, I think I'm making the point there is obviously biological factors that we have to take into account, but there's also social factors as well, and that's why I think the government needs to review all this properly. But I think it is self-evident that people in poorer areas, in high-density urban areas, living in overcrowded flats, damp flats. Um, they need better support because this virus has exposed the fault lines in society. Okay, let's finally also talk about uh, the fellow Labour MP, Rosina Allen Khan. She's not only an MP, she's also a doctor who's returned to the front line. And she asked a question of Matt Hancock, the health secretary, your opposite number in the Commons yesterday. He uh, criticised her for uh, uh, her tone and suggested she would be better off adopting the tone that you have had. Uh, she has hit back saying that uh, she'll use whatever tone, frankly, she darn well wants. What do you make of their exchange? I mean, I think the irony is the politician who got the toe wrong yesterday was actually Matt Hancock. I mean, Rosanna is is, is a politician, but she's also on the front line uh, as an A&E doctor, uh, putting herself at risk to care for patients. So we should be thanking her for everything she's doing in the NHS. OK. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio.
sector. Big questions being raised about the government's response to the pandemic. Uh, as we have seen, uh, the death toll figures rise and rise and rise. Uh, yesterday, we were told the UK death toll has overtaken Italy's 29,427 deaths. That's more than the 29,315 in Italy. Um, and it also, we did it two weeks uh, earlier uh, than Italy did in terms of our, uh, the pandemic taking a grip on the country. So has the government had the right policies or the wrong ones? Well, let's talk about all of this with someone who's been a very firm critic of this government throughout. Alistair Campbell, he's former director of communications for Tony Blair, of course. Good morning to you, Alistair. Hi, Julia. Hi. Look, before we go into uh, the, the uh, rights and wrongs of government policy and the death toll, let's talk about something which I'm sure you're going to regard as very, very flippant, but it is nevertheless the front page of many newspapers today. And that's the news that Professor Neil Ferguson, the man who was sort of the rock star epidemiologist uh, throughout this pandemic, he's been leading uh, the Imperial College uh, advice coming to SAGE, the, the organisation which is advising the government medical and uh, scientific advice on the pandemic and how to tackle it. Uh, he was the man who said, look, we're going to lose 500,000 people if we don't go to lockdown. Uh, the lockdown uh, was followed by the government. He, it turns out, was ignoring the lockdown rules uh, that he was actually inviting his married lover to his home uh, despite the rules actually banning that and forbidding it. Um, what do you make of his decision to resign? Did he have to go? Um, I think in the sort of current climate, yes. But I do think that this is all of a piece with with the the this general approach, both of government and media, to this thing. And I've written a, a piece today, 13,000-word analysis of how the government's been doing, how the media's been doing as well. And I do think, and you said in your introduction, you know, Alistair Campbell's being critical, what a surprise. At the start, I was determined to be supportive, and indeed was broadly supportive, certainly what the government was trying to do, because this crisis was so off-the-scale hard. But I think it's reached the point where we just have to admit, and the government has to admit, they've made terrible mistakes. The strategy has not, was not clear in the start. Then it was the wrong strategy, but they should switch strategy effectively without saying so. And a lot of what we're now dealing with flows from terrible mistakes that were made back then. And I really do think, as I say in this piece today, I really do think they need to reset the strategy. And that can only happen... And I'm not out for some sort of great big gotcha moment, but they have to say, as Macron did in France, look, when this thing started, we got some things wrong. We apologise for that. We recognise that, you know, we've not got everything right. And now here's what we're trying, we need to do. Okay. Instead of which, they keep making the same sorts of mistakes. OK, let me, let me, let me just stop you there. So, look, the article you've written is, uh, I say, it's rather too long for me to have read the entire yeah, article sure. while we've been on air. I'm sure you'll understand. But just uh, yeah. uh, looking at uh, the, the main points you're making in it, the headline it tells an awful lot. We are witnessing a national catastrophe, yet neither politicians nor the media seem willing to see it. Um there's no doubt at all, I think, that the government did get some things wrong. But there's criticism in every country of every government that they get things wrong. We know, as you say, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, faced a lot of criticism, an awful lot of criticism, obviously, of Donald Trump, criticism of the Italian, the Spanish governments, Chinese governments as well. Across the board, there is criticism. Why do you think that the media and politicians are ignoring things that are going wrong? I mean, certainly on my show, and I know one of the radio and television shows and the newspapers, uh, you know, politicians and, and journalists of all sides are constantly questioning the government decision decisions that people aren't just sort of cheerleading from the back and ignoring uh, anything that's going wrong when it comes to the issue of of, of PPE of testing um, everyone has been questioning that and quite rightly I think the I think there has been an awful lot of cheerleading and I'll give you some very specific examples I mean I go through 
in the piece, the, the, just to take one newspaper, The Sun, every single day that Boris Johnson was in hospital, his health led the paper. And I'm not saying the Prime Minister in hospital is not newsworthy. Of course it is. But the fact is, I think it was used as a distraction from the fact that the death rate was rising and rising and rising. I think that the I think we've seen something similar with the birth of his son, where Boris Johnson famously quotes, I never talk about my family, but he's been talking plenty, not least. And OK, I, I get the fact that he's probably very happy he's had a son and he's just escaped serious illness and so forth. But he's the prime minister. He's presiding over a national crisis. He'll, he, he, he has ducked and dived in terms of appearing in Parliament. He'll be there hopefully today for Prime Minister's questions. And I do think there's been too much cheerleading. And if you wait, back- Siri, Alistair, Alistair, seriously, you, you, you think that, uh, Alistair, sorry, that, that Boris Johnson and Carrie Simmons decided to, to get pregnant for her to go into labour and for Boris Johnson, no, no, and for Boris Johnson to get sick. I did not say that. What I said is that Boris Johnson serially tries to evade serious scrutiny. He has done it again and again. He's, He's not appeared. No, but no, Alistair. He's Alistair, I've let you. I've let you have week. plenty of say. So when I when, I, when you speak, I'll, I'll you know I'll I'll listen. And if you could listen when I speak as well, we know the reasons why he has not been appearing at press conferences since they were begun. It was going to be you know daily press conference. Boris Johnson would appear. Not at all of them. It was always going to be the health secretary and others, Rishi Sunak and others. But but we know he became ill. He couldn't appear at press conferences. Then he was so seriously ill he almost died in ICU. And then at PMQs. Uh, last week, you know, his 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 son had just been born. Um, he's going to appear today, and he's going to be taking questions. But there's no question at all. We've had ample opportunity as uh, members of the media and politicians to question the government, to question policy, to question the ministers in charge of specific policies. When haven't they been in? questioned? Can I get a word in? Do we have to go through this every time? No, well, you do because Julia, you you made your point. Ask the question and listen to the answer, and don't twist my words. You I did not answer say, the question now instead of whinging and moaning. Say, Come on, I answer did. the question. Julia, Boris Johnson, when he was mayor of London, when he's been he's been prime minister, he does not like serious scrutiny. That is the point I'm making. He has not actually. He's done one briefing since he came back. He is he is going to Parliament today. Why do you think he's making this statement on Sunday? How, why is he not, as the speaker said yesterday, going to Parliament? Now, the bigger point, if I may, and let me, can I make a point without you sort of, you know, jumping in with some diversion? The main point I'm making is that neither government, and I'm afraid to say the whole of politics, I think, nor the media, is reflecting what is happening in our country with anything like the sense of urgency that there was when, for example, this was happening in Italy and Spain. And I'm afraid it is in large part because your profession is, I'm afraid, very, very pro-Johnson, pretty right-wing. The papers today, yes, it's a story that this scientist has done whatever he's done. Of course, it's a story. The idea that it is the main story in the country today is utterly absurd. That's the point I'm But making. it's not. No, it's not the main story. Look, I mean, most most papers... papers. Um, you mentioned the papers. 
Yes, I me- I mentioned the papers. It's not the lead in the Times. It's the lead in it's the lead in three newspapers, which also have been tackling all of the issues of PP and other issues. It look it it is an interesting story. The man who's been behind the the, the, the reasons why we need a lot. It is it is a relevant story when when a member of the elite telling everyone else how how to yes, live decides this decides that he doesn't want to he doesn't want to obey the rules themselves. But this is a key thing. There has been a sense of urgency. There's a lot of concern. I mean, massive concern, particularly about the PP and about the the death toll and these international comparisons. But isn't it also the case that a lot of us, and I think a lot of us thought that the coronavirus pandemic would bring us all together. We've had some pretty nasty years since uh, the Brexit referendum and you and I have been on opposite sides on, throughout all of that. But actually, you know, we all want as few people as possible to die in a pandemic. We all want the government to do well, whether we voted for this government or not, because that's about saving lives. It's life or death. However, we have seen in the last few weeks absolutely valid criticisms being made of the government. No question at all about that. I've been making them, putting those questions to ministers myself every single day. But when we see some rather sort of dishonest um, headlines and dishonest claims about you know, the UK death toll, uh, not taking into account things like per capita rep- um, comparisons, whether or not each country is actually counting the same number of deaths and others, that actually people begin to distrust a lot of those criticisms. Well, people will make their own judgments in, in the round. Of course they will. But I think that, let me just say one thing, Dominic Raab yesterday saying that you know, we, we we can't make it. We can't make these international comparisons. You can bet your life that if there were, we were had the fewest deaths in Europe, they would not be saying such a thing. And I do think, you know, I was in government, working for the government for many many years. And let me just give you one example. The other day, when Matt Hancock did his hundred thousand tests, okay. Yeah. If a Labour government, of which I was director of communications, had said that we've hurrah hurrah. Oscar-winning ceremony, please. Round of applause, please. We've we've, we've cracked the hundred thousand target, and it emerged literally as I was speaking that this included tens of thousands of tests that were effectively in the post had not been done, and that since then every single day we have not carried out hundred thousand tests. We would never hear the end of it. In and there was plenty of criticism of that on the day and the day after. There, there was plenty there of criticism. Wasn't. There was very, I, there don't, was I don't know what media you're looking at. I'm looking at the same media as you are. And I think it's, I'm afraid it's just that you see it in a very different way because you've got very different views. I see tens of thousands of people dying. I hear a prime minister talking about apparent success. I see Matt Hancock day after day after day making the same promises as he made the day before that everything's under control and it's being dealt with. And the point I'm making in this piece for the tortoise is that until they admit how bad things are and reset, this is going to go from bad to worse. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to today's Julia Hartley Brewer coronavirus update. Please don't forget to like, comment and most importantly, subscribe. And you can catch me live on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 till 10. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.